Dude, the Chick Fil A, the Chick Fil A in Moreno Valley has this new thing where you can buy thirty nuggets for thirteen dollars. I just bought three of those trays as we I left need to town not for Thanksgiving. Know that. Oh, dude, why you it's like them? The best. I love their nuggets, dude. I just love chicken nuggets. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church, where Pastor Matt Brown brings real answers to your tough questions about the Bible. I'm your friendly host, Justin Pardee, hanging out here with Pastor Matt and Drusilla. Hey, yes. I'm Stephanie Keene. We're who, AKA Drusilla. Yes, oh you're Drus- Drusilla, at least for this episode. <laughs> We are back from the uh, Thanksgiving uh, holiday, which was fantastic, and we're all feeling on top of the world. Pastor Matt, you're rested. You had a little break, vacation, yeah, I family did, but time. I have not had Thanksgiving dinner yet. I will have it Ooh. this weekend. You know what? That's a kind of jealous of you, to yeah, be honest. We went but. to Tony Romo's ribs for Thanksgiving, so it was a little rough. <laughs> okay. A little rough. Well, you you, you, you pardoned a turkey. You pardoned a turkey. Yeah, I did. I pardoned a turkey. Spared, spared one. I will kill one this weekend. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, hey, every, every uh, week here on The Debrief, we take your questions and we get them in front of Pastor Matt. And before we jump into that, we've got some awesome follow-up questions, and then we are going to jump right into Acts chapter 24. But we absolutely love when you guys share uh, awesome reviews about us, whether it's on the iTunes store, on f- our Facebook page, over at The Debrief Podcast. Uh, and this one, I was super excited about. I get a little news alert anytime somebody mentions Pastor Matt Brown or Sandals Church anywhere on the internet. And this time I got one from Superfly Chicken Guy who answered a question on Reddit and said the debrief is his favorite podcast. And he said, it's a deeper look. I absolutely love this. A deeper look at the Bible and answers to questions that people send in. For those of you on Reddit who do want to learn more, which I think is very little, is a great place. And from a real pastor. Thought thought that was kind of awesome. Superfly Chicken Guy, thank you for representing us. Out in the Reddit world, we got one other awesome piece of review from Facebook. We do. So Chip on Facebook said, much love to you all. Praise God for this. Currently the debrief- Much love was three emoji hearts. Oh, yes. I guess that's Emoji heart, emoji heart, emoji heart. Good Me, job. That means much love. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. I guess I just translated that. That's how much I, I use I use those to mean I'm sorry. I didn't know that it meant much love. I'm going to start. I'm going to start. I thought it meant, I'm sorry, Tammy, please forgive me. (laughs) I just do the thumbs up for, I'm sorry. Oh, Oh, that's probably really rookie rookie move. Okay. Anyway, Chip says currently the debrief podcast is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for spending so much time devoted to learning, teaching and helping us grow closer to Christ and stronger with the word of God. This podcast helps us arm up with the truth for the daily battles we all face. Amen. I'm, I'm armed up right now. Oh, your arms are up. Yep, flexing them, flexing wow. them. Well, hey, just uh, before we jump into the show, I want to remind you, we are hiring for a content and media producer here on the show. So if you want to help us prep the show, get it ready, interact with the audience and listeners, and then also take some of the stuff that Pastor Matt says here uh, and turn it into awesome written content for the internet and webs to help people uh, as they grow and their journey to become more real, uh, you can find out more about that at bit.ly slash debrief job. We're super excited uh, about that for the new year. But hey, let's get right into it. You ready for some uh, follow-up questions, Pastor Matt? Yeah, absolutely. We are going to run the gamut with the topics for these questions. This first one comes in from Grace, and she says, is it bad to listen to the Sandals Church sermon and worship on Sundays instead of going to my church? I don't feel connected to my own church in LA the same way I feel connected to Sandals. Yeah, that's a great question, Grace. And I think it's a challenge um, you know, we're, we're working real hard, Grace, to um, start campuses uh, literally all over the United States, mm-hmm. and we'll be looking to start one in Los Angeles as soon as possible. Uh, first, we need a group of people, then we need a location, 
uh, and then we're going to begin starting these sites. The person you want to talk to at Sandals is John Brown. He is our uh, regional director who's going to be overseeing all of our sites everywhere. So, um, you know, Sandals has a vision to start 500 of these locations mm -hmm. uh, in the next couple of years. So, uh, Grace, my, my heart goes out to you. I, you know, this is what people don't realize about a church. A church is like a spouse. I mean, that's just what it is. I mean, yeah. you, you got to work hard. You got to pray through it. It's a big decision. And when you get committed, you know, I, I think off, for oftentimes, I mean, at least for me, it's for life, mm -hmm. uh, not just marriage, but, you know, Sandals Church, I feel like God's called me here for life. And so, um, you know, my, my first hope and heart would be that you would have a local community where you are, uh, a Bible-believing community. But I understand that that's difficult, especially in Los Angeles. It makes it uh, really, really difficult to find a congregation like Sandals. Eventually, Grace, though, you're going to need to get in a community group. You're going to need to be um, operating as a community because God doesn't want you to just be alone uh, as you worship, um, but wants you to be in fellowship with other believers. So grab a couple of friends, start watching it together, start doing the uh, small group discussion guide with each other after the message. That way you're getting a community experience and, uh, and I would encourage you to do that. So Grace, thanks so much. I appreciate the love and I'll be praying for you out there in Los Angeles. We need people who love Jesus there. So God bless you. Great question. Yeah, if you want help getting connected on that, Grace, just send me an email, prd at sandalschurch.com, and uh, we'll get that pointed in the right direction. And then you know what, Pastor Matt, I think you have a really good friend who pastors in in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Barkley Joe? uh, pastors a church called Radius, and um, I, I, I like him. I love that church. Mm -hmm. I would go there if I was there. But the problem with LA is it's massive, yeah, so it's Grace huge. could be literally Who knows? on the other side. So it's in the uh, North Hollywood district, um, kind of over there by... Um, uh, where are all the TV stations? Um, like Burbank? Burbank, yeah, it's yeah. right over there by Burbank. So I never am over there, even when I'm in LA. I'm not on that side. So, so hope that helps, Grace. Joseph Barkley, Radius Church, great church. All right, so this next question uh, comes from Jake, and he says, uh, on a couple of episodes ago, you talked about the protests in LA and how it's a bad idea to go down and join in. Is it always bad or disrespectful to protest a political decision? He says, he's, I'm thinking of other countries where Christianity is restricted. Is it ever okay to actively disobey or rebel against a government? Where's the line to draw on that? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, there are times uh, and situations when, uh, as Christians, we, we must rebel um, and we must... Um, you know, protest. Uh, we need to always do so respectfully and hoping for a peaceful outcome. And you need to understand that even when uh, pastors in America, uh, when it rebelled against um, uh, Great Britain, struggled mm -hmm. with this, and many pastors sided on the side of Great Britain because of the biblical principle to honor those uh, who are your rulers and your authority. And it really, really split the church in many, many ways. I mean, it split denominations, it split pastors, it actually yeah. split congregations. And so you need to understand that the revolutionaries uh, in America were not unified as Christians. They actually fought on both sides. And, um, you know, the British were difficult, were oppressive, you know, the whole taxation without representation. It was a very, very ugly, ugly uh, battle. And, and, you know, Britain would have considered us in America terrorists. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, we don't really see it from that perspective because it was our revolutionary war, but we were you know, terrorists and fought a very, very unconventional war against them because we believe that we were oppressed. And so it's a very, very difficult thing. In Germany in the 1940s, many Christians ended up siding with Hitler, trying to uh, not side with him, certainly uh, politically or even against the Jews, but tried to live a peaceable life. There was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who eventually came to the conclusion that it was unjust and evil to be silent when it came to Hitler. And so he actually uh, was a professor at Union College in New York City, went back to uh, um, Germany to fight against Hitler and ultimately to try to bring him down. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote some incredible books, lost his life. Mm-hmm. He actually died uh, on one of the final days before the Allied forces overtook the camps. He was one of the last individuals Hitler wanted killed because he didn't just hate Jews. He hated all dissenters. He hated everybody that was against him. And so there are some instances where as Christians, we have to fight. And that's the reality. That's why I'm a Baptist. One of the things that makes Baptists unique is that we do fight. Um, We do so carefully, cautiously, but when it comes down to it, sometimes the greater evil is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I realize some Christians are pacifists and I I welcome them and and I appreciate them. I do not agree with them. So there are some instances where we have to fight. My, my talk was more about this Donald Trump thing and just the rallies that were taking place. Um, they really weren't protests. A lot of it was anarchists. Uh, I don't believe that that's good for anything. These people that want no form of government, they're ridiculous. They're high on something. They're morons. You want a government. You do not want, I mean, if you want anarchy, I have a country for you. It's called Somalia. Feel free to immigrate there mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And you will come back crying if you're alive at all. That I mean, there are places in the world that are that this anarchy, it's, it's absolute disaster. And in anarchy, you don't get to be free to do whatever you want. You have to serve the local warlord and that's what it is. And warlords do what they want. And these kind of countries exist all over the world and they're very, very dangerous places. And so um, we wanna live in a state run place. And what we want is freedom to be able to worship and um, do what we need to do. Like for example, right now in Russia, there is extreme persecution that yeah. is taking place against Protestant Christians. If you don't know this, Sandals Church is a Protestant Christian church. That's kind of the uh, flavor of Christianity that we define ourselves as. Protestant and so, basically just means non-Catholic, right? It, it's protest. That's where the word comes from, uh, protesting against uh, really uh, Catholic oppression, um, you know, against those who, really Catholic priests who mm-hmm. saw some um, corruption within the Catholic church and wanted reforms. That didn't work. And so ultimately what they did is they started their own Catholic movement that was protesting the authority and the abuses of the Pope in Rome. And so that's that's why the name Protestant comes from is the movement wasn't to become non-Catholic. The movement was to protest against the injustices that the Pope was doing. And Popes were doing crazy things. You know, they had sex with and with multiple wives and multiple kids. It was, it was a disaster. It was absolutely disaster. And so young priests, Catholic priests like Martin Luther went to Rome and just were disheartened by all of that. And so ultimately decided to say, hey, look, we need to make some reforms. And that's where the the Protestant um, uh, vein of Christianity puts an emphasis on scripture. Our authority is scripture and then tradition. Uh, Catholics put tradition and scripture on the same Mm -hmm. token, which which allows the Pope to be authoritative. And we would say that Christian leaders must submit to the authority of scripture. So, wow, that was all the way out there. So having said that, there is a time to protest. And and as your spiritual leader, I will tell you when that time is. I mean, I'm not against it. I just think that we need to be we need to obey scripture. And it says, be a peacemaker as far as it depends upon you. So we need to do everything that we can to be a peacemaker. Um, you know, you can disagree. But the problem I had with this whole anti-Trump thing is we just voted. Mm-hmm. Like we just voted. We just had the democratic process. Okay, you didn't win. I'm sorry. Get over it. Right? I mean, either way, and I would have said the same thing to Republicans had Hillary won. Get yeah. over it. We, we just had a process. I mean, this, this stuff about impeaching him before he even takes office. I, it was asinine to me and, and really pedantic. Big word means Boom. childish. Boom. Dropping <laughs> verbal digits. Um, you brought up the, the example of what's happening in Russia right now. Is that yeah. a context where you would say, 
you know, protesting back yeah, against the government. But even there, you got to be careful because how does it benefit the church if all of our church leaders disappear? Yeah. And that's what happens in Russia, right? All of a sudden, oh, Pastor Matt got transferred to Siberia. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful. So, so you have to be very, very careful. And you're going to see this in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul is standing before a very, very bad leader in Felix. He's not a good leader. He's a tyrant. He's way worse than Putin ever dreamed of being. But Paul's going to work with him to the best of his ability because again, the goal of Christianity is not to usurp political power. That's the goal of Islam. That's a different religion. Islam mm-hmm. seeks political power. Christianity seeks the political power of God in the human heart. We want to transform hearts and souls, not political systems. Mm-hmm. And when Christianity has shifted and tried to take political power, it has become a very, very ugly beast. And why is that? Because the people that rise to the top when they try to take political power in the name of Jesus really aren't interested in Jesus. Mm. They're interested in themselves. And so that's why we gotta be very, very careful. So dissent, and all I was saying is, you know, don't run down there. It's dangerous down there. Bad things happen. I, I've been a part of those. I used to be a policeman. Uh, I was in the military during the LA riots. It was scary. Mm. It was very, very scary, the things that were happened. And I, I was in uniform with a machine gun, right? <laughs> you know, and, and, and you just see young people out there who don't know, who've never seen anything go wrong or bad. And people tend to act more stupid in a group than they would by themselves. And so that's why it's dangerous when it's two, three in the morning and people are setting police cars on fire and throwing bricks through windows. That's not for Christians to be a part of. Mm. Um, There are other ways to speak. There are other ways to move. I think, you know, people like Gandhi, Martin Luther King are great examples of how you can peaceably dissent. And I think that those are powerful ways. And yeah, people are gonna die, but you gotta understand people are gonna die in violent protests as well. So people are gonna die both ways. What do you wanna do if you wanna change the world? I think Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Jesus, right? There's an example. Mm-hmm. Pave the way for how to change the world. And, and, and the best way is to peaceably dissent. Um, you know, but again, they come for our families. Th- then, then, then that's a different story. Um, and then there's some great texts in the Old Testament to try to figure out what to do and, and how to protect ourselves. Because I'm not gonna let, you know, um, people die without a fight. And right. so uh, we need to be very, very careful in that process. So just just know, you know, um, I'm more concerned just about the rhetoric on Facebook and, and I'm really concerned about avoiding violence. Um, you know, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago in my sermon, the last thing that happens before there's actual physical violence is when people speak forcibly. And that's what I'm seeing. This rhetoric, this ugliness, the tone, it needs to all come down we're all in this together. Like President Obama said, we're all Americans together. We, you know, we voted as Republicans, Democrats, independents, confused, whatever, yeah. but everybody voted. Everybody got a shot. Trump's the winner. Um, so let's move on and move forward. And as Christians, let's pray for him because he needs help. He needs major, major help um, in figuring out how to best lead this country. And so the good news about Trump for us as Christians is he seems to be very, very passionate about protecting our religious freedoms. And for that, I'm excited. Uh, Some of his stances make me very, very nervous, but his Mm -hmm. stance on religious freedom, I think, um, is why you saw such a huge turnout for uh, him amongst evangelicals. But we'll see. Yeah. You know, we'll see. He hadn't done anything yet. Right. Okay, so Missy writes in, and she has a follow-up question about the Catholic Bible, which you mentioned a couple, I think it was two episodes ago, when you were talking about the story of the Maccabees, the mother with her seven sons. She says, I grew up in a Catholic family. Somewhere along the line, mom and dad decided for us to become non-Catholic family. My question is, how relevant or reliable would you say the Catholic Bible is? Uh, 
And I always wonder whether the rest of the Bible can be fully relied on if it was a group of elders and men back in the day who decided which books to keep in the Bible and which not to keep. Yeah, so that's a great question. And, uh, you know, first of all, so understand that, you know, the Catholic Bible is really made up of two sources. The first source is exactly the same as ours, both Old and New Testament. And they have what's called a secondary source where even the Catholics will call it deuterocanonical. And so what that means is secondary source. So uh, both Catholics and Protestants, when they split, and so remember the Protestants split against the Catholics, they were all Catholic, all Catholic priests splitting um, saying, okay, there's some abuses here, but we want to maintain our Christianity and our faith. The word Catholic means universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they wanted to stay within that context. And so they kept the same book. What they rejected was the deuterocanonical books or the secondary books. Uh, and those books are, um, you know, they're okay. I mean, I've read all of them. Uh, some of them are very, very helpful to understand some of the thinking of first century Jews. Jesus seems to alliterate and uh, talk about some of them because they would have been really, really contemporary to his day and age. Maccabees is the book that most clearly talks about resurrection. And so first Maccabees is really boring. Don't ever read it. It's just, it's like a bad history book. Second Maccabees is more like what you're used to where you see God intervening and God being a part of the story. And it's a pretty powerful story of a woman losing her seven sons and saying, don't worry, but I'll see you in the resurrection. Mm. Uh, Powerful. Um, So, um, it's great. So, so that's the main difference. And I would just say, if you're a Protestant Christian, what does that mean? You go to Sandals, you know, they're great books to read after you've read the Bible. Don't not read the Bible to read those. Read your Bible first, understand that first. Then if you feel like you're looking for something extra, then read that, um, you know, uh, Tobit. That's one of my favorite books uh, in uh, the Catholic Bible. It's a great, great story about, uh, you wonder where that whole idea of um, soulmate comes from. A lot of people say it's not in the Bible, but it is in Tobit. So this idea of a soulmate, somebody being uh, preserved for you forever, that comes from that book. Also, Guardian Angel comes from Tobit. So uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but Raphael, uh, the famous name, that is actually the name of the angel in the book of Tobit, Raphael. And so he is the angel who takes Tobit on the journey to find his wife. Uh, It's some of the stuff's a little weird though. So, (laughs) you know, uh, like uh, Tobit's wife, has been married seven times, can never consummate the wedding because there's a demon and he is jealous. And so he kills all of her husbands. Oh, And so the story is because, you know, ultimately she's going to wait for Tobit and Tobit's guardian angel, Raphael, kills the devil and they are married and live happily ever together. And Stephanie's eyes are like freaking <laughs> out. Again, if, you, if you're like, I've never heard this, is because it's not in the Bible. It's in the Deuteronomy canonical scriptures. And probably, so- Probably read that classic to my children tonight. Yeah, it's, hey it's a little frightening. And, Gather uh, around for a story from the pseudo Bible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so anyways, you know, I, I know this stuff, you know, I, I've read, you know, everything that's canonical, 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know, deuterocanonical. I've read the Apocrypha. I've read all that stuff, but that's my job. Yeah. My job is not to be like, I've never heard of that before. So, um, because I'm the pastor of a church of about 10,000 people. So mm-hmm. I need to know this stuff. You do not need to know this stuff. Don't, worry about it. There's other stuff like loving people, you know, being obedient to the commands of Jesus. Start there. That's a good place to start. But so let's say, how do I trust the other scriptures is? So one of the the, the myths amongst uh, liberals, and, and I'm not talking about you're a political liberal or a Democrat. I'm talking about liberal theologians versus a conservative theologian. And what's the difference? I'm a conservative theologian. What does that mean? 
I believe that the scripture is the word of God and it is reliable and trustful. Liberals don't believe that. It's a bunch of stories. It's a bunch of feel good stuff that points to a greater truth, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, that's what they believe. That is not what Sandals Church believes. We believe these are real words inspired by God to communicate real truth. They are authoritative. So why do I, why am I a conservative theologian and not a liberal theologian? Because this stuff wasn't just made up. I mean, the apostle Paul is talking about real events that happened to him. Jesus spoke to me. I saw the risen Christ. I was an enemy of Jesus traveling around the world, killing Christians because they're in a cult. Uh Mm Uh-oh, I'm on the road to Damascus. A bright light from heaven zaps me, you know, and says, why are you persecuting me? We know why Paul converted because he had an encounter with the risen Christ who he believed was a farce. I mean, think about this. Mm -hmm. That's our story. This guy who hated everything that's Christian became our greatest apologist, our greatest defender. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's incredible. And it's real stories about real things that happened. It talks about a real person named Jesus Christ, whom the Romans understand and see as very, very real. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the events that took place happened. Jesus Christ lived, he died, he rose from the dead. It splits Jews in Jerusalem. I mean, it splits them right down the middle um, because it was a real event that forever changed and altered the trajectory of Judaism and the trajectory of the world because Jesus was real. So why do we have the books that we have in the New Testament? For the most part, they are either written by an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. So Matthew is, a, is a, uh, an apostle eyewitness. Mark is uh, a part, he's in the Bible, but he is the amanuensis or the writer for uh, Peter. So really the gospel of Mark is really the stories of Peter. Uh, we have Luke, who's really writing the Apostle Paul's account. That's what he's writing. And then you have John, the young disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So those are the four gospels. That's why we only have four mm-hmm. because they were the eyewitnesses. So there are other gospels, other stories that are second, third, fourth century, but it would be like you and I writing something about George Washington. We didn't yeah. know him. We weren't there. We didn't see him. So our, our accounts aren't trustworthy. Then you have the letters of Paul. Okay, it's about 13 of them. Hebrews is debated. We're not exactly sure who wrote Hebrews, but it's so awesome, it got included. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely, it's actually probably one of my favorite books in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So you have all of the letters that Paul wrote. So Paul is an apostle. So everything that he writes is authoritative. Peter, First and Second Peter, written by Peter, he says, you need, to, you need to read Paul's letters. So we have mm-hmm. Peter, the rock, the head of the church saying, you need to read what Paul said, because that dude's smart. Yeah. So that's why that got included. Um, uh, we have James, half-brother of Jesus. He gets included because he's the half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> so, so that's where our scriptures come from. And, and that's why they're so important. So like, for example, you can be inspired by my sermons. You can be, your life can be changed by my sermons, but you need to understand my words are not as authoritative as God's word. And so, you know, these guys are writing these things. They're telling us the words of Jesus. They're telling us the commands of Jesus. They're telling us these things. And so... That's, how, that's why we know that you know, this is the word of God and, and, and it's changed my life and it's changed literally thousands of lives and you can trust this. You can trust this. We have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts and the differences are minute. There's a guy by the name of Doug Metzger who's PhD from Pepperdine University, one of the leading New Testament scholars of our age. He says this, that the scriptures, think about it, you know, 22, 25,000 different manuscripts are 90 identical, 98.7% identical. So um, my wife was reading this book by this uh, gal named Glennon. Um, She's this new- Doyle. Yeah, Glennon, Doyle, Brennan, or whatever. Monastery lady. Yeah, well, she's really, you know, thrown a lot of Christian women up in the air because she says that um, the scriptures are like the game of telephone. 
which if you know that game, what is she saying? You can't rely on it because telephone, you tell one person one thing at the end and it's completely different to the other. Well, she's off her rocker. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, 25,000 different manuscripts and they're 98.7% the same. Totally. And none of the differences are anything theological. It's the difference between I and we, and some of it's a prepositional thing or some of it's an explanatory thing. It's literally no difference whatsoever in terms of our theology. None of them say Jesus rose and then Jesus didn't rise. They say the same thing. So it's not the game of telephone. I mean, when have you ever played the game of telephone where you say it 22,000 times, 25,000 times, and it's 98.7% the same? Totally. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. So it is reliable. We can trust this stuff. And just know this, people died so that you could have these words in your hands. you know, they died. They did everything they could to get this to you. Um, and it's a miracle that we have the scriptures that we have. Take the gospel of Mark. We don't have the last chapter. Why? Because a scroll would have been rolled from the beginning to the end. And so the end would have been on the outside. I mean, these scriptures were handed horse by horse, carriage by carriage, boat by boat, bloody hand to bloody hand. And what that meant is it got frayed. And that's why the end of Mark is lost. Mm-hmm. But it tells you how valuable it was. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and we need to be thankful that we have it. So trust the word of God. The word of God will change your life. I read it every day, every day. And I see people say, well, I don't, I, I already read that. Yeah, so did I. And I read it over and over and over again. And I'm so thankful and I'm so appreciative of how, no matter how my life changes, God's word's the same and it speaks to me. So my, my encouragement would be to read, 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 read it and know it. That was a long answer. It was awesome. My little brother just finished his PhD. He's also a professor at Pepperdine University. And he and a team of people, like he spent the last four years of his life analyzing every single little piece of original documents they could get their hands on from, uh, it was Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Oh, cool. And they analyzed every single difference, which were all those little minutia type things you were talking about. So Doug Mesker was, I believe, a professor at Pepperdine University. Sounds right to me. Hey, there's a really good book that I read like 10 years ago. It's for, I mean, it's pretty heavy reading, but it's called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? by a guy named F.F. Bruce. If you're uh, one of those Bible nerds that listen to the podcast and you want to like go even deeper in your understanding of what Pastor Matt just said. To me, it was a really helpful book that I read probably eight to 10 years ago. I yeah. think on your recommendation, Pastor Matt. Yeah, I've read a lot by Bruce. Great guy. Cool. So our last follow-up question comes from Sam and he's referencing uh, Pastor Adam Atchison's sermon from our Hunter Park campus this weekend. Actually, I think it was at all the campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, Pastor Adam said that if God does not pass judgment, then the hope that Jesus offers does not have the same teeth. He made it sound like God's judgment can heal the pain that has been caused to us. So Sam's question is, how can God's judgment on others help heal the pain that they may have caused me? Yeah. So for example, you know, I I think that is Sam was his name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sam, it's a great question. One of the bizarre qualities of our modern society is we lack the strength to judge. We just Mm -hmm. don't have it anymore. Uh, So for example, the constitution of the United States says that we will not engage in any cruel or unusual punishment. You know, modern people, uh, liberals particularly, they, they believe that includes any amount of suffering whatsoever in the cause of death. So like you give lethal injection and if there's any, you know, whimpering of breath or whatever, that that's cruel and unusual, which is just crazy to me because when you die, Justin, Stephanie, mm-hmm. myself, we're probably gonna whimper a little bit. There's gonna be some discomfort in the yeah. process of passing and right, and we've committed no crime. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've just gotten crazy in this idea that we can't punish people and God does not have the same problem. God is willing to punish and he has promised that vengeance is his, he will take this and he will make things right. And so one of the things, Sam, that will make heaven paradise is that we will know that those who have done great harm to us 
have in fact been dealt with and have been judged. And um, we need to understand that, that one of the reasons that we can trust in God and one of the reasons that we have hope in Jesus is that he's not just going to ignore all of our pain and all of our suffering. Hitler is in a very, very real hell and deservably so. Why? He killed millions of Jews and millions of others. He deserves to be there. He should be there. And God will in fact punish him. And um, I think that it is a testament to God's goodness and to our hope that when we're slighted, hurt, offended, when our friends are murdered, our loved ones are tortured, that that is not going to go unnoticed. God is love. And because he loves us, he will punish those who have committed great harms and great atrocities. And, and the reality is there is no justice, but God's justice. Only God can exact justice because even if you take somebody's life, that doesn't bring back the lives that were lost. That doesn't take away the hurt and the suffering. God will both judge those who are guilty for their crimes and he will restore your heart. And so it's a testimony to the goodness of God that we can trust him fully, that he will both deal punishment and take away heartache and and it's beauty. So in heaven, it's not like we're just going to forget that these things happened, but God is going to actually let us see how he handles judgment that will in some way, because his judgment is perfect, bring peace. Mm. And then he will restore our hearts. And so it's a beautiful process. And it's something for us to understand as Christians is that justice is literally God's idea. It's not America's idea. It Mm. is God's idea. And God will not judge with favoritism, but he will judge everyone the same. And for us as Christians, thank God, he will judge us according to the blood of Christ, which completely cleanses us from all condemnation and we are forgiven. But it's important to understand that for heaven to be a real place, hell has to be a real place and that there's real judgment. And so we'll talk about that a little bit today in Acts 24, as Paul talks about the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. So great question. And I understand this is a difficult concept for our modern minds, especially our American minds that are so uncomfortable with the idea of any kind of punishment. It just, we just, we're just uncomfortable with that. Um, and it's just one of those bizarre uh, emotional, uh, or not emotional, but cognitive ideas that we've developed that any mm-hmm. kind of punishment is cruel and, and, and inhumane. And that's not what the founding fathers intended. You know, they didn't want you to like skin somebody alive or, you know, kill their whole family. I mean, yeah. it just was like, it's like, don't go overboard, but you know, they had no problem with, you know, hanging somebody or the electric chair or all of these things, which, you know, I'm not promoting those things. I'm just saying death is not always nice. So I, I want to make sure I understood here the way that you're, what you're saying is the way that we experience healing through God's judgment on others is kind of through when he judges others. It's like, he's saying, I see you. I see what you've experienced yeah. and you're not alone. I care about you. Yeah. So for example, let's say something and God forbid something horrible or awful ever happened to my family or my kids, and somebody did that, they committed a crime against them. Um, One of the ways that God will demonstrate his love for me on the day of judgment is I will see that person brought to justice, real justice, not this fabricated, you know, you're gonna stay in a hotel, you know, at uh, taxpayer expense for the rest of your life justice, but real justice and God will exact punishment on him and or her or whoever did it um, showing his, and fulfilling his promise, you know, that, that he would take care of that. So he's asked me to not exact justice. I'm to forgive. I am, and I am to trust the Lord that he will repay, that vengeance is his, mm-hmm. and I am to trust him uh, with that. And, and then in that, he will heal my heart for any hurt or pain that has been caused uh, to me. And um, 
And I, I just think that's a part of God showing, I'm going to make everything right. Got it. So... Cool. All right. Well, hey, we love getting your questions here on the show. If you've got a question that you want Pastor Matt to answer for you, send it in on Facebook. Just find us, uh, The Debrief Podcast, or you can go to debrief.show, click the big red button that says, ask a question, and we'll get it on here. Yeah, those are great questions. Not easy, but great. (laughs) All right. Well, let's jump right into Acts chapter 24. Paul uh, is now going to be standing kind of on trial here before Felix the governor, not the cat. So in verse one, it says, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer Turtleus to present their case against Paul to the governor Felix. So how legit is this lawyer um, Turtleus guy? Is, Is this a big deal? And you know, how big of a deal is it for them to bring him in the case against Paul? Yeah. So it shows you that these Jewish guys are smart. Ananias is not, you know, he's not a dumb guy. I mean, this guy's a smart guy. He realizes that his power and influence uh, is greater in Jerusalem. Uh, Remember uh, uh, the commander snuck Paul out by night with about, you know, almost 500 soldiers to Caesarea. So he's not in his territory anymore. So basically he rules the roost in Jerusalem, but now he's in Caesarea and he's really under Roman control. Do we know if this governor or if the lawyer Turtleus was Jewish or Roman? Yeah, or? We, we don't know. So some, some scholars will say yes, some say no. And so the problem is, is that in, uh, what verse is it? Um, one of the verses he uses uh, we, the word we, mm-hmm. but in verse nine, he says them, basically. So it's really confusing. If he said we on both counts, you would think that he's probably uh, some kind of uh, Hellenistic Jew, so Mm -hmm. a Greek-speaking Jew, but he may not have been. He may just been a Roman attorney that uh, the Jews would use for cases. I I think he probably was a Jew because he needs to have an understanding of a deep understanding of Jewish law, mm-hmm. but he also has to have an understanding of Roman law. And so it wouldn't it wouldn't have been uncommon for a Jew to be able to succeed in both realms. I mean, Jews are, have been historically a very, very bright people and educated people. And so uh, he would have been able to, to do that in both ways. But we don't know. The text is, is silent on that. Um, you know, uh, either way, he was a, a ninja turtle for the law. <laughs> so that's how I remember his name. Turtleus. And it's probably a pretty big deal then that he's coming in. Is yeah, that at, at great expense. I mean, they've paid for him to travel there and basically make their argument uh, as they would have had to do many times. And so this is not something that, you know, this is not something that's rare for the Jews, but it is expensive. And so eventually we know that um, the Jews will send a, delic- a delicacy, <laughs> a, a What's Del- the word? Delegation. Delegation. Thank you. Not a delicacy. I'm thinking donuts. A hey, delegation. Uh, if you want to yeah. send me a delicacy. Yeah. <laughs> they, they'll send a delegation to Rome to actually complain about Felix that ultimately causes his removal. Hmm. So that's going to happen in about two years because he is such a bad leader. So, the, the, you know, the, the Jews have some success with this. So they're hopeful. Okay. So in verses two through four, it says that when Paul was called in, Turtleus presented the charges against him in the following address to the governor. It says, you have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, your excellency, we are very grateful to you, but I don't want to bore you. So please give me your attention for only a moment. So this whole opening just sounds like straight up brown nosing. Was Turtles being genuine here? No, not at all, man. They couldn't stand this guy. They hated mm-hmm. Felix. I mean, Felix, uh, it's funny you say Felix the cat. I think in Latin, Felix means laughter. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think that's where it comes from. Felix the cat, you know, the, funny the laughy cat, the funny it. cat. Um but yeah, he, Felix is no joking manner at all. He's he, so. Let me give you a little uh, history on Felix. Felix was a slave, hmm. and somehow he was uh, through uh, connections with Rome. He was set free, and not only was he set free from his slavery, but he was given a kingship. And so eventually, he or, uh, he was king of Samaria, and then he's moved over to Caesarea. So he's been promoted through the ranks, 
and he's a very, very tenacious individual. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, think about it. He, he, he's the rat at the bottom of the cage that survived, that ate his way all the way to the top. This guy is an ugly, ugly dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's tenacious. Uh, he's married several times. When, when he's done with a wife, he discards her, he moves on. Ugh. This guy puts down the Jews, uh, puts down rebellion, literally with such a firm hand. I mean, he makes Pilate look like a, you know, a, a schoolboy here. Uh, um, he's just a disaster. And, and the reality is, like I said, eventually the uh, Jews will send a delegation to Rome complaining about his violence. And guess what Rome does? They side with the Jews and they remove him. And he's called back to, to Rome and nobody knows what happened to him. He probably lost his head. I mean, he was just not a good guy, but he was, uh, he was a person trying to a- attain power. And so he had really put in some reforms that made the Jews just mad mm-hmm. constantly. So they hated his reforms. And so for them to say that we are so grateful for you is an yeah. outright lie. Um, and they call him your excellency, right? It's just flattery. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're trying to brown nose so that they can get their way um, and so they said, we don't want to you know, bore you. So give us your attention for only a moment. We don't know how long he talked for, but it's probably a little longer than what Luke wrote down. Okay. So in verse five, Tertullus starts and he brings the first two of what seems like three accusations here. He says, we found this man to be a troublemaker who's constantly stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. And he's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. So let's pause right there really quick because it sounds like he just called early Christians a cult. Is that an accurate view at the time or was he just slandering Paul? Yeah, that would have been Ananias' view, Ananias' view. Okay. But it would not have been a Jewish view. So you're gonna hear in Paul's defense that he argues that he is still a complete follower of God as a Jew. And so the Jews are actually split on this issue. And they're not just split on this issue. The Jews are split on many, many issues, which is one of the reasons in AD 70 why they're completely destroyed by the Romans Mm -hmm. because they can't agree with each other. Mm -hmm. They fight amongst themselves and literally are fighting each other until the last moment when they realize, oh my gosh, the Romans are here. Uh, and, and then it's too late. It's just too late. And the Romans just completely wipe the face of the earth with these guys. So, you know, they're not, they're not together on this issue. They're not unified. For example, Christianity is not unified. I mean, I'm a Baptist. There's 247 different denominations of Baptist. Mm-hmm. Why? Because people have opinions and things you know, get misinterpreted. And so, um, you know, even amongst Catholics, Catholics have different views. You know, uh, our current Pope is Jesuit. He's different. I don't think there's ever been a, or maybe there has been a Jesuit Pope, but there hasn't been one that I remember. So he's new. Mm -hmm. He's of a new kind of ideology and a new stream of thought. So even within Catholicism, there are veins of different schools of thought, just like there are, you know, in Lutheranism or Protestantism or, you know, any of the other varied denominations, there's differences of opinions. And so, what he's saying is he's trying to give him cult status, which means these guys are a plague and they need to be destroyed. And mm-hmm. so basically it's the charge that this is not a legal religion. Got it. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be dealt with. Well, and so. what we know, based on what we know of the Roman empire so far, accusing him of stirring up riots all across the Roman world seems like it's a pretty substantial allegation. Yeah, so the most dangerous crime that you could be accused of as an organization was violating Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. Okay. And so Rome's, man, Rome tolerated a lot of things. They did not tolerate, you know, rivals, uh, rebellions or anything like that. I mean, you dealt with like the fist of Rome if you handled that. So this is a serious accusation here. He's saying, we found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. This guy is literally trying to start a rebellion all over the world. And that's why you need to deal with this. Oh, and by the way, he's a ringleader of this cult. Mm -hmm. So not only is he a rebel, he's also a part of this bizarre cult called the Nazarenes. And it's interesting 
that they use a different term than Paul uses to describe himself. Uh-huh. So I think they're probably trying to use a term maybe that that uh, Felix is not aware of mm-hmm. so that, you know, he can, you know, like for example, Mormons, we call them Mormons. They will call themselves Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Why? It sounds more Christian mm-hmm. than Mormons. Mormons, people think of as separate from Christianity, which yeah. I believe it should be thought of as separate from Christianity, but Jesus Christ. So, so it, it's all about languages and the way that you, you know, you say things. And so he's trying to phrase this in such a way to make it sound more bizarre. Cause where's Nazareth? Middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. It's some freakish little town, you know, up in northern Israel that nobody goes to. And so this guy's, this guy's, you know, from this hillbilly town, this hillbilly cult, and he needs to be taken care of. You know, kind of like snake handlers from Kentucky or something. Yeah, yeah. And my apologies to Kentucky. Love you. <laughs> so then he goes ahead and lodges another accusation against Paul and says, furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Turtleus said was true. So we know that Paul's already made a pretty solid defense to the Romans before. Why would Turtleus go and suggest a cross-examination and letting Paul talk? Yeah, I think it's a mistake. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to, I mean, would you, if you were trying, I I don't know about you, but if I was trying to condemn Paul, I certainly don't want him to take the stand. The dude's brilliant and is probably smarter than anybody in the room. But these guys are confident. They think they've got him. I think what they're trying to say here is in a passive aggressive way, look, Felix, you're a smart guy. You'll figure this out quickly. And as soon as you examine him, you're going to see this guy's a troublemaker. This guy's a part of a cult and you're going to give him back to us so we can kill him and take this problem off your hands. The problem is the commander from Jerusalem already wrote him a letter Mm -hmm. and said, this guy's innocent. I don't know what to do with him, but these guys are going to kill him. So I sent him to you because he's a Roman. So he already has already heard from the commander that you know, I, I look this thing over. It's just a bizarre disagreement between the Jews and, you know, who knows what these crazy Jews, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand the differences in what they believe. So I, I think they're trying to set him up. I think it was a mistake to let Paul talk because Paul is a genius yeah. and Paul is going to use this not only for his defense, but to try to, you know, give glory to Jesus Christ for who he is and, and what, why he died and, and how he rose from the dead. So Okay, so yeah, exactly. In verse 10, it says, the governor motioned for Paul to speak and Paul said, you can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or in the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things that they accuse me of doing. But... I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. So why doesn't Paul just drop the mic here after he points out that there's absolutely no evidence? Why does he go on to associate himself with the way? Because, I mean, he's a follower of Jesus, and he can't not associate himself with the way because he's had an encounter with the risen Christ who blinded him and spoke to him. And I mean, Paul, right? Paul's life has been changed. And this is just, you know, for anybody else out there who's become a Christian, once you have experienced Jesus, your life will never be the same. And you can't say that Jesus isn't real. It, you, I mean, right? I mean, you, you could put a gun to my head and you can make me say a lot of things. I can't say Jesus isn't real. I've experienced him. I've heard from him. I've felt his presence. I've seen his power. I, I mean, I, I, I can't say that. I mean, it's just, it's just not possible. And so Paul is saying, look, I've only been here 12 days. And basically what he's saying is that's not enough time to start a rebellion. Like you think there's no internet, there's no, there's no, you know, there's no telephones, there's no way to mass communicate. I mean, it takes a while, years to get a rebellion going, to have a platform and be able to do this. Paul's like, I haven't even been here two weeks, you know, and I was just in the temple worshiping by myself. These guys just don't like me. And the reason is because I do follow Jesus, whom they think is a, you know, is a cult, but it's not. 
I worship the God of our ancestors in the same way they do. Mm-hmm. I just believe in this guy named Jesus. So then in verse 16, it's, Paul continues and says, I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. What does Paul mean by that there, that God will raise both? Yeah, so this is interesting. This is the only time, and remember I said Paul you know, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. Uh-huh. This is the only time in any of Paul's writings where it is attributed to Paul, this idea of the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. In all of Paul's writings, he talks about uh, living his life in such a way so as to experience the resurrection. And so if we just had Paul's letters and we didn't have the gospels and we didn't have the book of Acts, we might think that the resurrection is something only for those who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so the word righteous and unrighteous, a better way to understand this is right and wrong. Those who've lived in the right manner will be raised and those who've lived in the wrong manner will be raised. And so Jesus talks very clearly about this. So we have the gospels. And so in the gospel of John and Matthew, Jesus says that the day is coming when both the, both the good and the evil people will, be rise from, will rise from the dead and be judged. Mm-hmm. So Jesus affirms the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And so if you're new to Christianity and you don't know what the resurrection is, it's not a resurrection of your spirit. It's not a resurrection of your ghost. It is a resurrection of your body. Your body will rise from the dead and it will be sent to eternal hell for, for judgment, separation from God, or it will be gathered amongst the faithful, the righteous with Christ for those who've repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And your body will be transformed and changed and it will become like the resurrected body of Jesus. So we will live in a physical world. We'll eat food, we'll sleep, we'll experience life, but it will be a perfect life. So think of, you know, everything that you've ever wanted the earth to be, and that's what it will be. So you're not going to live forever in heaven. Heaven is where God lives. Earth is where you and I were made to live, and we will experience that. And you can read about the new earth uh, in the book of Revelation. You can read about it in the book of Isaiah. So this is the idea, the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So everyone will stand before God in physical form and be judged for their life. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Paul says, even our secrets will be judged. Yeah. Everything that we did, didn't do, thought of doing, all of that stuff will come before light. And that's why I strongly encourage those of you who aren't Christians yet to repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because if that's the way we're gonna be judged, that means Mother Teresa, Gandhi, they're host. Good people, better than you, better than me. But they're not, they're not perfect. They're mm-hmm. not righteous. Only Jesus Christ was righteous. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. And so... Uh, that's what he's talking about here. So the resurrection, when we get into uh, 1 Corinthians, like chapter 15, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but Jesus affirms this, um, like I said, in Second Maccabees, that's where it really, really becomes clear. Uh, but Jesus talked about it. Paul affirmed it. Revelation is, is pointing towards this day, a resurrection. So the, the hope of Christians is not that we go to heaven and play golf or fish or knit or whatever it is that you're doing. The hope of Christianity is that one day we will all rise from the dead. And we will, as Christians, get to live on earth with Jesus in a perfect place. Think about Mm -hmm. it, no smog, no death, no cancer, no depression. All of those things are gone. And we will get to experience life in relationship with God as it was in the garden. It's gonna be awesome. And by the garden, I mean, Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Okay, so verse 17, Paul says in his defense, after several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. This is the, the offering that you've been talking about that was his reason yeah, for traveling, Yeah, so right? if you've been asking these questions, I don't understand why you keep talking about this offering. This is the offering that he talks about that he's gathered and he's you know talked about in Romans and Corinthians that he's trying to put together this offering for the church at Rome who are suffering. And they're probably suffering mainly because 
as they've committed their lives to Jesus, they, they probably lost family members, relationships, friendships. They may even lost employment. Imagine if you're a priest who works in the temple and ultimately you work for Ananias, right? Not mm-hmm. a happy guy. And you've given your life to Christ. What do you think happened to you? You lost everything. You lost your livelihood. And if you didn't own property, as many Levites didn't. Mm-hmm. And remember, there were thousands and thousands of priests um, that worked in the temple in Jerusalem. And so a lot of these guys lost their jobs, lost their livelihood. And so they were in great need. The church was very, very poor in Jerusalem, which is why James has worked so hard to try to mend fences because he's got all these Jews that have been severed and cut off and, um, and they're hurting. And so mm-hmm. Paul's brought this offering and he's saying, look, that's, that's why I came. And it's the only reason I've come is to come to help my come brother. Yeah. Yeah. He says, my accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. So that seems like a pretty um, big hole in the prosecution's case. Yeah, here it's, it's, a, no... it's a nightmare case for Turtleus and Ananias and the fellow Jewish uh, leaders that have come. I mean, so basically think of it this way. Let, let's say like, Justin, we know you're a speeder. Um, and you got a ticket uh, driving in a school zone at 80 miles an hour because mm-hmm. you were um, being a sinner that day. Yes. But you go to court and uh, you say, I'm not guilty. And let's say the policeman doesn't show. Do you know what happens? Even though you were driving 80 miles an hour in a school zone, which is like double fine, you're in big trouble. I'm what off happens? The hook. I'm yeah, off the hook. The judge will throw it out because there Sorry, is no moms. witness against you. Yeah. And not that you would actually do that because nope. that would be terribly... Um, Unchristlike Very to drive that way. We know Stephanie. Maybe, I was that probably way, listening to the debrief, though. I was fired up. Yeah. So that's it's a drop the mic moment. There's nothing they can say. He says, "Look, man, these aren't even the guys that arrested me. They're not here. They should have brought them with them, but they didn't. And uh, you know, you're going to find out I didn't do anything wrong." He says, "There was no crowd around me. I was all by myself. I was not writing. Matter of fact, I was there completing a purification ceremony, mm-hmm. which is you know like a serious, serious ceremony." Mm-hmm. So. so then it says, at that point, Felix, who is quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. Now, it seems like Felix has enough evidence or lack of evidence to just throw this trial out. Why does he now want to wait for Lysias to decide? Yeah, I don't know. This is bizarre. So notice that, you know, Paul's accused of being a part of the cult, but Luke is very, very clear here. He says at that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way. So we weren't called Christians yet. Mm-hmm. We were called people of the way. Why? Because Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes before the Father except by me. That's John fourteen six. So he understands, okay, th- this is basically a religious dispute. We have Jews who have rejected Jesus and Jews who have uh, f- decided to follow Jesus. So he's very, very familiar with it. He said, you know what? I'm going to wait till Lysias, the garrison commander arrives. And I think he's buying time. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to figure out how do I appease these guys? Because, you know, um, Felix has had a lot of conflict with um, the Jews, a lot. He's killed a lot of Jewish people. He's frustrated them. He knows that he's in trouble. Um, He knows that Rome is very, very frustrated with his inability to deal with these Jewish people. The Jews are frustrated with him. So he's trying to appease them. But at the same time, he's gonna try to appease the apostle Paul, who he knows now is a Roman. And he's actually more of a Roman than Felix is because Felix is a slave who's been set free, who became a Roman. Paul was born a Roman, Mm -hmm. which is a higher standing in the pantheon of Roman citizenship. Paul's a more legit Roman than Felix is. And so he's, he's not going to kill this guy. And so, you know, Paul comes from a very, very established family, a very, very wealthy family, a very, very powerful family um, who probably made its wealth selling tents to um, uh, 
Roman uh, armies. So it, it's a powerful family. So he's he's trying to he's trying to figure out how to how to appease both, and he's doing what politicians do, trying to find the middle ground and not you know um, tick off both parties. And so, and maybe he's praying that this will just die down because he's probably not going to send for Lysias. Because why would he take his commander away from Jerusalem when he knows that you know there's a bunch of crazy that. passionate Jews there? Yeah. He doesn't want to take his commander away from there. So he's like, look. And, and the truth is he doesn't need to because Lysias already wrote him he's a note. He's already got that letter. He's mm-hmm. got that letter. And Lysias says, look, this, he has the testimony of Lysias. He doesn't need to hear from him personally. Mm-hmm. So, so but he, but, hold on. So he ordered yep. Paul to keep him in custody, but he gave him some freedom and allowed his friends to visit him. So he's, right, he's treating Paul with respect. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it says that a few days later, verses 24, it says, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul. They listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control in the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. So do you think Felix was wanting to talk to Paul here out of personal interest in what Paul believed and understanding the way? Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you a little history on his wife. So his wife, Drusilla, is... um, uh, she's a she's a little cutie. So uh, a lot of people get very very excited about the way she looks. Uh, she's a young teenage girl, very exciting in the day and age of Rome. So okay. many Roman men would marry young teenage girls. She's probably 12, 14 years old. She actually left her husband. Uh, she was married to uh, a um, uh, a Jewish king of a small province up in northern Israel. She left him for Felix. Felix is a very very powerful guy, rising. This is Felix's third wife. Oh. Uh, so he has left his other ladies for this uh, young gal, Drusilla, who's Jewish. And again, so Romans were fascinated with Jews. Jews are exotic. And so they like their, um, you know, in Acts, you see uh, a a Roman leader will have a Jewish prophet that hangs around, that's around there. So Jews are kind of exotic. They like this idea that they worship this one true God. They're committed. And so they're, they're always, they're just, they're just, I guess the word is infatuated with them. Okay. They're irritated by them, but they're infatuated with them. And so this this young Jewish girl was very, very beautiful. And so they knew a lot about the way and they probably thought about converting. The problem is with converting to Christianity, it involves repentance, which would have been a very difficult process for Felix and his wife. So he sent for Paul as they listened, he told them about, listen, about faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's all good. How do you become a follower of Jesus? You just believe in the son of God. Here's the problem is he reasoned with them about righteousness. So if, you, if you're listening to me and there's a, there's a big move in Christianity today that, you know, you can, you can just follow Jesus and love Jesus and not repent of your sin and live, you know, whatever life you want to, and there's no consequences, that is not in the gospel. So if we go back to Acts 15, what do pagan Gentiles need to do to become Christians? Don't sacrifice food to idols. Don't eat strangled meat. Don't drink blood. Why? Because that's what freaky cultish people do. Mm-hmm. And don't have participate in sexual immorality, which for the Jew is any sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. So what's the problem? Felix is married three times. He has committed adultery with uh, Drusilla because he encouraged her to leave her husband and pursue him. This mm-hmm. is a no-no right. in, in, in Jewish life. So he talked about righteousness and what? Self-control. This, is, this sermon's not going well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay? And the coming day of what? Judgment. Judgment, because God is going to judge Felix for this. And so what happened? Felix became frightened. Mm. He's convicted, but he doesn't repent. Oh. So he said, go away. And this is what's so sad. I think so many times when I'm preaching is people feel frightened and they feel convicted, but mm. they don't wanna change their lifestyle. And because of that, one day they will face judgment. We will all be judged for the way that we lived, uh, both both the quick 
and the dead, the Bible says, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged for our lives. Um, and what's so sad about that is so many people think they're good today because they never committed any crimes. And that's what's so sad about our, more, our declining moral standard is that the definition of righteousness for most Americans means I didn't hurt anybody, I didn't kill, kill anybody. And let me translate that. I lived my life completely for myself and I didn't bother anybody else. That is the definition of moral righteousness. That's the definition of sin in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I lived for myself and I didn't engage with anybody else. Simply divorcing yourself from the evil around you is not enough. You must engage it and try to change it as Christians. And that's what we're called to do. So he's frightened, it freaked him out. So apparently Paul preached with some passion here. He said, I'll call for you when it's more convenient. Well, what, what does that mean? When my wife is not around. Apparently this fired her up. Mm-hmm. She got a little upset and didn't like Paul's moral rant about what they did and how it was wrong. So, and it also says that he hoped that Paul would bribe him because remember, Paul probably came from a wealthy family and he's carrying around a large sum of money. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of bribe do you think he would have expected from him? Big time. So Felix is an opportunist. Like I said, he's the fattest rat at the bottom of the trash can who has eaten his way to the top. Um, Bribes were illegal in, in Rome, just like they are in many countries. I remember when I tried to get out of Cambodia, I was there with my family a couple of years ago. They let my wife and kids go through and they held me until I paid the guy. Oh, and I'd really? pay him like a hundred bucks to oh get out gosh. of the country. And I mean, right, and there's a big sign on his desk that says, bribing is illegal, call this number. <laughs> I mean, it was right there, but I wasn't getting out of Cambodia until I gave him some money. Hmm. And um, it happens all over the world today. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been, I've faced this in Africa, I've faced it in Asia. I mean, we're very, very blessed in America that, you know, I mean, if you try to bribe a police officer when you get a ticket, usually that means you're going to jail. So mm-hmm. we're very, very blessed here. but. In most of the world, that's the way the world works. That's the way things happen. Things are under the table. And so that's what he wants. And I think what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to get a bribe from Paul. And then he's going to try to get a bribe from Ananias. And he's going to see which is the bigger bribe. And that's the decision that he's going to make. So. Right. Yeah. So it says, after two years went by, uh, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish, Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Yeah. Now, two years is a really long time. Was it likely that Paul or maybe the other believers were trying to work for his release, or do you think they were just waiting it out? Yeah. So this is this is a bizarre thing, right? So he he sees that he's innocent. I mean, clearly, but he says, you know what? I'm going to leave you in prison for two years. I mean, think about how all the things the apostle Paul wanted to do, mm-hmm. but he's put in prison for two years. But what's amazing about this is it actually worked in our favor. So many of the letters that we have came from Paul's time in prison. I mean, Paul will actually write this in Ephesians. He's, you know, talks about being in chains. Mm -hmm. So he's imprisoned. So thank God for this prison time because it was very, very powerful. So Paul would have been exposed probably to uh, Matthew's gospel. He would have been exposed to, you know, uh, Mark's gospel. He would have been reading these things and seeing these things and been a part of that, helping Luke write this story. He may have sent Luke on his journey during this time to make sure that we have a written account for all of these things. So it wasn't like he sat on his thumbs right? He was working this whole time, but he was stuck in prison for two years. But it's interesting. It says that Felix was succeeded by Porteus Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Well, why would he want to do that? Well, what Luke isn't telling us is the reason he is deposed of is the Jews have gone to Rome and complained. And Mm -hmm. Rome has sent a delegation and they've called for Felix to come to Rome. He's in trouble. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's, he's trying to mend fences as quickly as he can. And so he's in a tough spot. I, I got a Roman prisoner that you know, I can't kill because that's going to put me in trouble with Rome. And I got a bunch of Jews who are ticked off at me and they've gone to Rome and Rome has agreed with them. So, you know, he's between a rock and a hard place and there's nothing that he can really do. So he just leaves Paul in prison 
and says, you know, I'll let, I'll let it be Festus's problem yeah. because I, I don't know what to do here. And that's where we'll pick up next week in Acts chapter 25. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly, dude. All these cliffhanger <laughs> chapters here in a row, dude. Luke is working on his little narrative yeah. uh, styles. Good stuff. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for listening. And and uh, listen, we appreciate those of you guys who are helping support Sandals Church as we produce the Debrief Podcast. You heard Pastor Matt talk at the top of the show about how we have this uh, vision and this goal of you know 500 more churches like this. And uh, we're, we're pushing really hard towards that, for, even for the new year. Man, we are working so hard so that we can launch two new Sandals Church locations next year. And any ways that you support... Uh, the Sandals Church are super helpful as we try and pursue that vision that God's given us. So if you are a fan of the debrief here and you don't attend Sandals Church, man, we would appreciate your willingness to uh, join us on our mission. If you go to sandalschurch.com slash give, uh, that'd be a great way for you to support what God is doing here. If uh, you are a part of Sandals Church, listen, that holiday season's coming up. You know somebody who wants one of those super soft debrief t-shirts or <laughs> maybe a sticker for their Lunchbox? I don't know. I don't know how it goes. Oh, I just had a vision of a debrief Snuggie. Ooh, oh, we can, you know what? those out for the holidays. Maybe we'll order some. What, listen, guys, once the t-shirts go out, go out of sale. <laughs> yeah, up next we'll, is Snuggies. Yeah, Snuggies come next. And of course, we love it when you guys share the show. You can find this one online at debrief.show slash 43 or on facebook.com searching the debrief podcast. Super great. We love having you guys here. Before we get out of here, Pastor Matt, it's time to learn some more Christianese. Learning Christianese, I think I'm learning Christianese, I really think so. Learning Christianese, I think I'm learning Christianese, I really think so. That's right. So this week on Learning Christianese, what do Christians mean when they say guarding your heart or guarding someone else's heart? Yeah, I, yeah, that confuses me as well. Um, I, I think it means... For especially for singles, to be careful who you fall in love with, because once somebody you give you your give you your, your heart to, they have it. Um, so if you're a, a single person and you're dating somebody who's a non Christian, I see this all the time. You fall in love, and then you're like, "What am I supposed to do?" And the Bible says, "Don't give them your heart." So guard your heart. Be very very careful with who you give your heart to, because people like to stab your heart. <laughs> so I have had that many many times. So be very very careful, and it just means it means protect who you trust with your heart. So trust God with your heart. Um, trust Christian leaders carefully and slowly uh, because there are Christian leaders who are boneheads out there. And uh, I've met many, many very, very dangerous Christian leaders uh, who love to stab hearts. So be very, very careful. So I think that's what it means. Um, so guard your heart in what? Yeah. Oh, Earl, I've heard like, oh, make sure to guard her heart. Like t- people talking to dudes about dating, similar. Oh, hmm. Well, I haven't dated in a long time, so I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm not exactly like a sure thing what that, that means. Around, like, college groups, like, oh, make sure you're guarding People you guard used to talk about heart. DTRs when Pastor Matt was dating, oh. right? Yeah, yeah, DTR, define the week. relationship. Yeah. I, I think that what it means is, is, is you, you know, don't, you know, if you're a Christian, you know, don't try to get married on the first date. Take a little time, guard each other's hearts. Don't, don't jump in the deep end of the pool if you're not ready, you know? Just because somebody loves Jesus doesn't mean they're the one. So go, right. go a little slow. Get some floaties on before you get married, kids. Yes. You know what? I remember the first time I had to, oh, I went so down, funny. the first time I went to like have meet up with some girlfriend's dad in high school, I, I, I stopped by the store. I bought a day planner just so that I could have a look like a legitimate guy who was trying to be a man. It was totally empty. I literally bought a day planner, pulled it out, and then brought it into Jack in the Box with me. <laughs>